0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Sick of being upsold at gyms. long way to go. It's a long way to temporary to the sweetest girl I know. Goodbye, Piccadilly.
3: everyone, and welcome to a History of the Great War interview. Before I dive into the interview today, I wanted to just talk briefly about why this is appearing on the feed. Over the years, I've thought about doing interviews for the podcast, but I never pulled the trigger. After History of the Great War ended, I decided to do interviews for my sequel podcast, History of the Second World War, a process that I found I really enjoyed. What very rapidly became apparent to me is that there were all kinds of excellent people I wanted to talk to about the First World War as well. That means that moving forward, there will be interviews appearing on the speed from time to time, monthly, quarterly, who knows, just whenever I'm able to get in contact with someone online that I think will make for a good interview for on a First World War related topic. The general format is that for each interview, there will be a short mini episode to provide the interview with context and background then a 30- to 45-minute interview will happen. As always, I love feedback on what I'm doing, so if you have any questions, comments, thoughts, concerns, or in this case, suggestions on who I should talk to, or if you're a person that you think I should talk to as well, hit me up at historyofthegreatwar@outlook.com. at outlook.com. For the first interview, I was joined by two members of the team behind Glory and Defeat, a YouTube series from the creators of The Great War YouTube series, which I know many of you have heard of. If you have not heard of it, it was a YouTube series which is, is still running that covered the events of the First World War and its aftermath in roughly real time, which is basically the perfect format to cover the First World War in, because that's what I chose as well. Glory in Defeat, though, will cover the Franco-Prussian War, which began in July 1870 with the French declaration of war on Prussia. The causes of the war are complicated, as they often are, but revolved around two things. The first were French fears of the growing strength of Prussia after its victory over Austria in 1866, and the possibility of a German unification. The second was the general belief among many Prussian leaders, most importantly Bismarck, that a war with France was inevitable, and it was better to make it happen soon. When the French declared war the official proclamation from Napoleon III to the French people, would include the line, quote, The glorious standard, which we once more unfurl against those who challenge us, is the same which bore throughout Europe the civilizing ideas of our great revolution. It represents the same principles and will inspire the same spirit of freedom. Now I know what you may be thinking. That certainly is not the First World War. And you're absolutely correct. However, the Franco-Prussian War and its aftermath are an integral part of the story of the First World War. The conflict and the defeat of France would play a critical role in souring relations between France and Germany for generations, especially around the transfer of the provinces of Alsace and the Reine from France to Germany as part of the peace agreement. I have read many books about the start and causes of the First World War, and a good number of them, of the vast majority of them, at least mention the result of the Franco-Prussian War as one of the root causes of the later conflict. One of the reasons for this were that all the people involved in both wars. We mentioned this in the interview, but if you start looking at the generals and political leaders during the First World War, so many of them on the French and German sides played at least some role in the Franco-Prussian conflict. For many, it would be in the formative years of their early military or political careers. For the French, leaving a legacy of defeat, and for the Germans, of, of victory with Moltke the Elder, the head of the Prussian army, being idolized by future generations of German military planners. While the French would launch the first offenses of the war, it would be the Prussian and German armies that would attack into France and bring with them decisive victory. The greater ability of the German forces, from their speed of mobilization to their use of railways, would be an important lesson for the French military to learn. The French defeat would set in place this series of events that would lead to the French offensives of 1914. In the years immediately after 1871, the French military would move into a very defensive mindset, fearful of another defeat like it had suffered in 1870. This then would cause a reaction from more offensively-minded officers a generation later. It would be that generation that would have so much impact on French planning before 1914, leading to the disaster of the Battle of the Frontiers. On the Prussian side, The Franco-Prussian War was their great victory, cementing Prussian power not just within the soon-to-be-united Germany, but also within the entirety of continental Europe. It was the culmination of the march towards a Prussian-dominated, unified Germany, which would force other nations to respond in the decades that followed, leading directly to the alliances that were so critical to the start of the First World War. Obviously, all of this just barely scratches the surface. And Glory and Defeat will dive far deeper into the details about the conflict. And it's a conflict that, even with its great influence on the course of history, remains largely unknown beyond broad strokes among the English-speaking world. If you want to find out more about Glory and Defeat or financially support the project, head on over to RealtimeHistory.net to find out more information.
0: For now, let's dive into the interview.
3: Hello, everyone, and welcome to a history of the Great War interview. Today, I'm joined by Jesse Alexander and Catherine Fouth of the upcoming series "Glory and Defeat," uh, which covers the Franco-Prussian War. Jesse and Catherine, um, how's doing it going well, today?
2: Sitting here in the Berlin studio. So, uh, yeah, thanks for having us on. Okay, so your
3: company, I guess I'd call it, in real-time history, uh, just is probably best known for the series The Great War uh, on YouTube, which started in 2014. So I know you've been covering post-World War I topics on that show for a while. Um, so moving from that era back to the Franco-Prussian War, uh, what kind of excites you about this, this new time period that you're jumping into?
2: Well, there's probably no shortage of things, I guess uh, you could say, that is exciting. Um, uh, One of them is the partnership between real-time history and Katherine and Professor Arand at the University of Ludwigsburg in Germany. So that's kind of exciting new thing. But as far as the Franco-Prussian War is concerned, I'm a World War I guy, right? So for me, it is a bit of new territory, not for Katherine. but what started to strike me as i started to get into the reading and now we're into the scripts and the shooting and all of that is that this is really kind of the turning point to the europe that i know best which is you know the situation uh, that leads into the first world war i mean if you look at the map before this war and after this war one of them i know like the back of my hand And one of them, I've got to sort of crane my neck and be like, what is that little German kingdom down there again? And what is that grand duchy of whatever? So it really has this kind of impact on the space, the political space in Europe. And I think that's one of the most fascinating things that kind of sticks out at me. And the other, of course, is that France is not the top dog anymore. And that is a huge change. It's been that way for centuries that like France is the number one power on the continent whether they've lost a couple wars and so on doesn't matter i mean it took almost all of europe like 20 years to defeat france in the revolutionary and napoleonic wars and here they go and essentially they're they're defeated within a few weeks even though the war drags on into something interesting in its own right the the main battles they lose and that changes the whole dynamic that's been there for centuries in terms of France's position in Europe. So I think that's kind of the, the big takeaway that, that I had to wrap my mind around when I started to think about it. But catherine has been working with this conflict for years. Yeah, I was going to ask uh, you
3: know, her what, uh, what initially got her interested in studying the Franco-Prussian war and what has, sort of, um, what some of, what has kept her interested in studying it over the
1: years?
0: Um, well, if I have to be honest, uh, what got me interested in the first place would be, um, Jesse, I already mentioned him, um, to be his aunt, he's one of, uh, the history professors at the university, um, I'm from, and basically if you have him as a professor, you have two choices, either be infected by his enthusiasm for the so-called unification wars, especially in 1870, 71, or avoid his seminars, that's pretty much the choice you have. And obviously um, I did choose the latter. So, um, and then we got into the Twitter project, which we already spoke about. We did a, a real time Twitter project on um, the Franco-Prussian war. Um, it ran last year from July 1st until June 9th this of this year. And we tweeted the uh, franco-prussian war not just in what happened but also how did it happen and how did it affect the people so we had individual stories that we told uh ranging from the um yeah you could you could say top so kind of like the monarchs and everything um all the way down to the simple soldiers or, or the um wives of people the civilian um civilians and it was a Big big project and um, yeah, I stuck with it and I got really interested in the war and everything around it. And um, getting into the war, you you just see um, the effects that the industrialization has on warfare. So, for example, um, you could you could say that the Franco-Prussian War was one of the first or the first modern war in Europe modern war and um, you have new weaponry you have um, intensive use of the railroads and their deliberate use Um, you have newish communication methods um, and all all of this there's so much happening so many things change from how they have been and it's exciting to see how it affected the people and life and life in general during this time and once you're kind of in there, I don't know how to describe it better. Um, you just, you, you, yeah, you can't get away from it. And then obviously what Jesse already said, um, the Franco-Prussian war or the era of the unification wars um, also foreshadows the events of the first and then consequently, eventually the second world war. And to see how things affect other things, <laughs> Years later is really, really, really fascinating.
3: Yeah, I think the you mentioned the, the Twitter feed that you did. I think it, it's always really interesting when I see um, uh, projects around trying to represent history in something approaching real time, because so often our history is like super compressed time wise. So you'll have like one page of a book that talks about events, and then the next page is talking about events six months later. But when you try and bring them in this real time, kind of uh, platform or structure it really makes it clear how long some of these things uh, happened or or how short uh, depending on the event
0: yeah that and you have um, especially with the Twitter project that we did and now what we're kind of trying to incorporate into the YouTube videos um, you have you, you see how the war what people say it's the war it wasn't just the war. It was a war that effect, that had different effects on different kind of people. I mean, the way um, for example, um, Napoleon III experienced the war is so different from a civilian whose um, town is destroyed or a soldier who gets injured and has to live with the consequences of the war. You know, so that's um, that, that was one of the um, the feedback we we've received that people hadn't thought about that war is fought by people and not just um declared and then you have machines doing the war but it's actual real life well not alive anymore but um real people who had to fight and do all of that and so that that's that's kind of a a cool thing to that we got people to realize that <laughs>
3: Yeah, that that's interesting, and I think that's uh, definitely very valuable because uh, history becomes very different when you're talking about Victor the soldier instead of the twelfth division um, doing something.
2: Right, and we want to we want to bake in, so to speak, all of those different levels into this into this series, and that's one of the reasons why we reached out to Katerine and Professor Arand because we knew from the Twitter project, we also knew from his book that he published on the war in 2018, that this is kind of their approach. And it's the kind of approach that we really took to heart, especially, I mean, I can only speak to um, the Great War Channel after the armistice when I joined uh, the team, but that's really kind of part of our ethos of how we want to do this is mix in that chronological narrative, as you say, but thicken it and like deepen it uh, with these individual stories and also with some kind of historical assessments so that we can keep that level of comprehension and education going as well, not just kind of relating a series of facts. So that's the kind of recipe that we're trying to mix together and then put it in a visual package.
3: Yeah, I think that's really good. Do you... Um what do you think like, are, is going to catch people, people by surprise or, or what's going to kind of shock people with, um, or, or be super interesting to people that, that maybe they didn't know before um, as you're covering these events?
2: Well, this war is not that well known in the English-speaking world. And in some sense, that's kind of understandable. I mean, no English-speaking country played a direct role in it. But in another sense, that's a cry and shame. And that's one of the reasons why we selected in our in our real-time history kind of brainstorming retreat uh you know we had different ideas for the next project and that's one of the reasons why we picked this one is because we feel it needs needs to be given its due um i think it's underestimated how tough the experience of this war was uh, to kind of piggyback a bit on what uh, katherine was uh, talking about I think also in the English speaking world, we're just not familiar with the experiences of people who live in other language uh, realms. Let's say we don't have access to the literature. It's not something that's in our popular culture as much. And so I think we underestimate, you know, France was a serious thing. I have to emphasize it. It is like a major power. It's a major war making power. They just won several wars in the previous years before 1870 against great powers. They helped defeat the Russians in the the Crimean War. They defeated uh, the Austrian Empire in the Sardinian War. And so they're like a very serious thing. And yes, they lose most of the opening battles with their imperial and professional army. But it's not like it's a cakewalk. I think we have the impression that it's a cakewalk. And when you drill down, and this is what we try to bring across in our uh, scripts, I mean, this is serious bloody fighting. The Prussians and other uh, German troops suffer extremely high casualties. And I think also due to their own tactical mistakes, I think we also have this impression that like, you know, Bismarck's a genius, Prussian army, totally awesome iron kingdom, blah, blah, blah. I played it on my computer games with the rise of Prussia or the Kaiserreich or whatever, and now I'm just rolling over those Frenchmen who basically don't do anything except retreat, right? I mean, that's kind of a bit of the internet pop culture narrative. Dude, it's not that like there is absolutely vicious fighting, uh, the German commanders accept massive casualties. In order to achieve those victories. Yes, they have some advantages over the French, in particular artillery. But like, I think, as an as an English native speaker, and kind of thinking about that as our that group is our main audience, not exclusively, but main, that's one of the real things that uh, sticks out at me. Plus, the first German to die in the war was actually a Scot. We talk about that in one of our companion episodes for supporters so i'll leave a bit of mystery there
0: well um to piggyback on this um when you the the franco-prussian war and we should really discuss about the name of this war but the franco-prussian war um it's not well known in germany either um most school books have maybe one page where they show um, a painting from Anton von Werner, um, the proclamation of the um, Imperial Proclamation, I think it's translated, and that's pretty much it. So um, they're like, oh yeah, there was a war, we had German unity, let's go to First, first World War. It's, it's not well known, and um, I think what will surprise, and I have to agree with Jesse, is the um, tactical brutality which with which uh, this war was fought. Um, I mean, you have a two to one or one and a half to one ratio of soldiers. Um, and it's not only, the, the Prussians not only accept that they have the, those super high casualties, they plan with them. So basically what you have is you have the great general staff, the große, große general staff, sitting there be like, okay, the French are up on the hill. What are we going to do? Well, if we send twice as much Germans Prussians, Württemberger, Bavarians, up the hill. Well, if half of them come arrive on the top, then we have a fair chance. So um, to get behind this kind of thinking, um, that that's that's probably going to be something that will surprise a few people, and then also um, the realization that there was this big war. especially Germans will probably be surprised because um, there is no such thing as a um, historical consciousness um, about this war. We don't have it. There's still so many remnants uh, from this time in our world that we live in. There's still street names uh, named after battlefields, for example. There's still memorials everywhere and people just walk past them and don't understand it. Um, for example, um, I live in Stuttgart. We have a, a Bismarck place, and there's a, a, an ice cream shop. And right above this ice cream shop, you have a sculpture of uh, Bismarck's head, and nobody knows. So he's he's just hanging out there over an ice cream shop, and people have ice cream and don't know that he's there. And if if, if you tell him, "Hey, have you seen the have you seen the sculpture there?" They're like, "Oh yeah, who's that?" Like, yeah, it, it's it's fascinating. And I can't say that I was any different, to be honest. Um, before I got into uh, university, um, I lived in a street called Wörtsstraße for 20 years almost. And I, yeah, a bit less, 15. And I didn't know what the Wörtsstraße was for. And then I went to university. And I was like, well, okay, I lived in a street that's named after a battle. Well, it took far too long. So I think those are the kind of things that will be really interesting to um, the people watching. Obviously they have an interest in the military side of everything, but also the, the political side that what, what happened, how did it, how did the war? Yeah. How, how did it come? How did it come to a war? Basically what happened before? Um, and then what I'm hoping is that they will, Kind of say goodbye to some of the imaginations that they have, um, especially the oh, Bismarck, the great political genius, uh, that kind of thing. Because yeah, it'll be really, really interesting to work with this and see where it leads.
2: Sorry, Wes, uh, we're droning on here, but like, there's just so much you can you can edit out half of my ranting will not be edited if you want. Uh, <laughs> you know, I think there's a, a hidden business opportunity out there for a Franco-Prussian war-themed ice cream chain, but that might be a discussion for uh, another time. But I think um, one of the other aspects, and what made me think of this, I had it in my notes and forgot it before, was uh, Catherine talking about you know the different shades of Bismarck, where he has this reputation as a genius planner, but actually... The real situation is a lot more complicated than that. That's true kind of, I think at every level down the chain of of human experience that we go. And so one of the things that we want to incorporate into these episodes to express that, and this is a change that I think we've taken from the Great War Channel after 2019, is we are injecting quite a lot of quotes from primary sources, from letters, from diaries, reports, and so on more than I think we did in the in the earlier years of the Great War Channel. And I think we kind of have a bit of the luxury of that in this case, because the war is a bit more manageable. Although <laughs> Catherine is probably not going to believe it when I say that it is a bit more manageable. Uh, it's hard to cram everything into the episodes that we need to, but it's a bit more manageable so we can take the time and say, look, okay, we have these diaries and we're going to use more primary quotes and Luckily, I speak fluent French and German. So we even add in for a bit of added kind of emphasis, hopefully a bit more authenticity and flavor. uh, We quote a little bit in the original languages as well. Interesting. Yeah, I think, you know, over the years
3: of doing this podcast and other podcasts, what I've found the feedback from people is often they really like. Um, kind of discussing the political side or the personal side of these conflicts, because I, I, my assumption is that that stuff is often a lot harder to kind of find and digest. You need somebody who knows a little bit more about the history to summarize it for you, to, or you end up you know having to read a whole bookshelf to find the you know political causes of the Franco-Prussian War.
2: Yeah, and uh, that's why we've got Teterin and Professor Arand uh, with us. And of course, the flip side of that is the compelling individual human emotional stories and dramas. And so, if we can get that balance right, and I think that we, I think that we have in the episodes that are out so far, and I think that we will continue to do so, uh, then I think people are going to be happy with with their experience watching, learning from it and kind of experiencing along with the characters that are that are in the in the videos as well.
1: Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition.
3: So you mentioned it earlier, Catherine. It sounds like we need to talk about the name. Um, it's, it seems like we really needed to talk about that. So should I not be calling it the Franco-Prussian War?
0: Well, when you say Franco-Prussian War, what does it insinuate? Who fought this war?
3: France and Prussia.
0: Well, did France and Prussia actually fight this war or was there somebody else as well? <laughs>
3: I, d- I didn't realize I was going to be quizzed on this interview. <laughs> Uh-oh.
0: Can you tell that I'm going to become a teacher eventually at some point? is
2: yeah. <laughs> from yeah. Southern Germany. Can you tell?
0: <laughs> I haven't spoken German yet, but yes, uh, I'm from Württemberg nowadays baden wurttemberg um, And there was a thing called German-German War a couple of years before, the Franco-Prussian War, in which um, the Prussians... Defeated Austria and uh, the other southern German states that fought with Austria, and then Prussia and the southern German states. Um, they had so-called treaties called Schutz- und Trutzbündnisse. and those those treaties, um, we can call it forced, forced the southern German states to uh, fight this war with Prussia. Nonetheless, they fought this war with Prussia. They lost a lot of people um, in this war. So uh, calling it the Franco-Prussian War is um, on one level wrong and on the other level a bit insulting, personally. Um, So yeah, technically, um, I mean, I think any other language that I know calls it the um, Franco-German War, for example, or the German-Franco War, depending on who you're asking. Um, so the Franco-German war calling it, this name would be a lot more accurate to what actually happened than calling it Franco-Prussian war, even though the war did break out between France and Prussia. So France declared the war to Prussia and then Prussia called their uh, pulled the card and was like, all right, people, let's go. Let's fight a war. You have to fight it with us. Um, You don't want to fight it. I don't care. I have a treaty, fight it. So, um, that's kind of what happened. Very condensed. Um, yeah. So calling it the Franco-German war would, in my personal and scientific opinion, a lot more correct than calling it the Franco-Prussian war.
2: And let the record show that real-time history agrees with that in principle. But try putting Franco-German war into your search engine optimization and YouTube algorithms in English, and it ain't going to end pr- well. So we went with the conventional English uh, terminology for the uh, for the series. But yes, I mean, you know, historically, Franco-German is, is a far more accurate term. That is true.
3: We all must bow to the search algorithms uh, of the world. <laughs>
0: It is okay. what it is. Modern
3: living is tough, man. <laughs> uh, so, so you mentioned earlier that uh, you know this this conflict is uh, for an English speaker is quite hard to to maybe read about or find a lot of information about. Do you have any English language sort of book recommendations for people out there who may want to sort of get ahead of your story uh, from your videos?
2: Yes, uh, I do. Now, in English, there's not these kind of new uh, one volume comprehensive kind of histories. Those exist in French and in German. And in fact, Professor Arand has written kind of a very significant book, one of the standard works now uh, in German. Um, I think there's a couple options for the English only reader. One is you go for the classic. You go from Michael Howard, The Franco-Prussian War, and he wrote it in 1961. But you know Michael Howard is a legend in military history, and it's still definitely worth reading. And then you can, you can find more modern works that treat certain aspects of the war. Like, for example, uh, Karine Varley is a British historian, and she wrote a very interesting book about the French memory of the conflict and how France then like processed it, this traumatic defeat and then semi-revolution and the Third Republic happens and so on uh, called Under the Shadow of Defeat. So I think that's a good one too. If you wanna dip into primary stuff, there are a couple of accounts from war correspondents and like military observers like Philip Sheridan Civil War general, right? He was an observer uh, with the German armies. And there were a couple of others. I just came across yesterday night, a Canadian artillery officer reported on on the war as well. But uh, probably the most famous and accessible one is uh, William Howard Russell. I think he's famous for his reporting on the Crimean War. But he also published extensively about this war. So that's That's kind of those are the sort of directions I would give to listeners of yours who only read English.
0: With the primary stuff, just one word of caution to everybody who wants to read it. Always think about what their goal is and how they're portraying what they're writing and what they're saying. Don't take it for the truth that's being told. be smart and think about what they're trying to achieve with with, which they're writing.
2: Indeed, it reminds me of that commercial in the 80s, you know, with the, the American commercial, I should say, with the egg, and then the frying egg, this is your brain on this is your brain, this is your brain on drugs. I think you can say like, this is your brain reading contextualized primary sources. And this is your brain just accepting primary sources at face value. It's, it's
3: never never a good plan, uh, um, that one. So when looking at the, the Franco-German war, is there a particular event or, or person that you are really looking forward to discussing on the show or kind of bringing to a, a larger audience?
2: I think I'm going to cheat slightly on this answer and choose an event that takes place after the fighting is over, and that's the commune in Paris. Actually, not only in Paris. Uh, this is the, the kind of leftist socialist, if you will, although it's, it's a complex state of affairs, uprising that happens after it's clear, okay, France has lost the war, and it's in a state of chaos, so to speak. And there's this massive uprising centered on Paris, but in other French cities as well. And it ends in a total massacre of the people who are in revolt by the French army. And to me, this is like one of these crazy after effects of the war that it shows something that's under the surface, in a sense, that I don't think we who are interested in military history pay enough attention to. And that are all these incredible social tensions in this era of industrialization and this era of nationalistic war that combine and clash. And I think that massacre, I mean, there's like tens of thousands of people killed in one week by quote unquote, their own army. If you look at it in terms of nationality, if you look at it in terms of social class conflict, then it might be slightly, a slightly different picture. And this is like more than half a century or yeah, slightly less than half a century before the Russian Revolution, when we kind of think, oh, yeah, you know, communism and socialism, they're on the scene in the world. Well, guess what? They don't come out of nowhere, right? There's, there's this uh, very significant event in the commune that happens in the spring of 1871 that I think uh, deserves attention. And we very much hope that our fundraising for this project will allow us to extend the series to be able to cover that event in detail Um, and as far as people are concerned i will fully admit here i'm just Mm -hmm. i just have my world war one glasses on anytime i see oh joffre was an artillery man uh, uh, trying to break the siege of paris foch was at uh, studying at a college in metz when the when the german armies arrived or hindenburg and mackensen served in this uh, war that's when i really perk up so i i'll admit my bias as far as that's concerned
0: well um, suppose for events um, I've already mentioned that the imperial proclamation will be great to look at um, happening on January 18th Um, there's just so much to unpack like why did they choose that date to proclaim the empire Um, there's so much going on behind the scenes um, and we will or yeah we will attempt to deconstruct how we see this event um, as I already mentioned it's shaped by the painting of Anton van Werner um and most people don't know that the painting that we know today is the third version of four there there used to be four versions of it um nowadays I think there's only one and there's just a lot to discover and tell about it that most people just don't know, um, and that'll be fun. And then for persons... Um, now, okay, it's, it's a bit of a struggle for me to decide, because I just... I worked with so many um, persons of this wall, but... Um, I suppose I'm excited to tell the, the story or, yeah, you could call it dramatic fate of Karl Klein. Um, he was a pastor in Froschweiler, which is near Börth, where on August 6th, um, a pretty big and bloody battle will happen. And he tells, um, he published his experience in a book after the war in an attempt to deal with it. And it's, this book is very different um, from a lot of the um, so-called uh, where they uh, just celebrate the war and have a very affirmative um, narrative of the of of the war and he's quite quite critical of it and um, you just you can read a lot about how they experienced the the actual battle and the days before and especially which I found most interesting um, the aftermath of such a battle such a battle because I've never asked myself, for example, who had to clean up the battlefields after a battle happened. Well, might as well spoiler alert. If you don't want to know, don't listen to it now. It was the civilians. And uh, he tells those stories with gruesome details of rotting um, horse and human corpses, corpses and how they had to bury them and then sometimes weeks later had to dig some of them out again because their families wanted them home so that, that that's that's a story that I'm really looking forward and telling if anybody wants to know more about him he's obviously um Tobias Arendt mentioned him in his book which Jesse already mentioned unfortunately it's only available in German um if enough people are interested in it in English maybe the publisher might translate it and then there's also um carl's klein book it's called froschweiler chronicles so um chronicles which is also in german and was just published uh, in an annotated version by tobias arend and christian bundenberg um, but then also um, the empress eugenie she's a really really fascinating person because she's a very very strong woman um, she obviously she wanted the war um, not only to um, secure her position but also to secure the position for her son, her son Lulu um, and she's yeah, she, she's really fascinating to work with and especially tell her um, her escape after um, the Battle of Sedan and then I suppose Bismarck Bismarck, he's really, really fascinating if you look beyond the political genius narrative that he himself constructed, by the way. um, From what you can read in original sources, he was um, quite tantrum prone. Um, Yeah, I think he he was famous for his tantrums in which he actually laid on the ground, beat his fists into the ground and screamed until the king did what he wanted. So um, telling that will be a lot of fun. Um, he cried and screamed a lot. Um,
3: wait, wait, are we, we're talking about Bismarck, not my four-year-old daughter, right? Just to be clear? Yes.
0: The okay. big, big, big man who ate a lot of meat and drank a lot of beer and had a really high voice for some reason. Um, yeah, he he behaved like, like a four-year-old t- sometimes. Um, and there it, it is written down in a lot of um sources that we use and i'm so looking forward to using to using them
3: (laughs) i bet the youtube comments on that one
2: are gonna be great
0: (laughs) oh i hope so indeed (laughs) i just hope jesse can keep a straight face when telling that story
2: (laughs) many takes will be required this has happened. We have had times where I just crack up because something is ridiculous and you just got to do another take. But hey, it, that's part of the deal.
3: It, you, yeah. So you both kind of uh, mentioned something that I think is, is really interesting and in that sometimes the most uh, interesting events happen after like traditional stories end, right? So you're talking about after the battle, like what happens after the battle when there's all these, uh, you know, Killed individuals on the field, um, whereas most histories stop at "oh, they won the battle and the armies left," and then also, you know, you're talking about what happened after the after the war was over or or close to over. Um, you know, having dealt with the First World War, and I know um, Jesse, you're also in this camp. What happens after? Kind of the traditional stories of a lot of these events are incredibly interesting. So. Right now, you said there was a a funding goal um, of some kind, but where do you plan for this series to end currently?
2: Well, we're trying to keep it open as much as possible. And right now, essentially, what we would like to do if we can continue to successfully crowdfund is to extend it to include, I guess, the two most important things. The, the fighting kind of comes to an end in very early in 1871, but obviously that's not fully the end of the, the war or its immediate ramifications. So what we want to do is extend to include the commune and extend to include the peace negotiations, uh, which end up, I mean, that is extremely important. It ends up in the Treaty of Frankfurt or Traité de Francfort, Uh, Depending. And that is, of course, what seals the deal that Alsace and part of Lorraine become part of the German Empire. And to me, of course, as a First World War guy, I want to cover that. I want to cover, you know, how was that, how did the French try to stop that from happening? You know, what are the different interests that are at play? What do people think about the future? What are they trying to get out of the piece? Those things are really important uh, elements to understanding why a war is important in the long run. And so we want to try to push that as much as we can. And another thing related to the financing, of course, and this goes throughout the entire thing, is we want to illustrate these as well as possible. Right. And it's a bit tricky when when you go into the era before film. You start to have a few more challenges in terms of illustrating the level of detail that we want to have so one of the aspects that we've incorporated is we're working with custom illustrators to illustrate scenes for us and archetypes of you know different types of soldiers and equipment and and you know that costs some money but we can already see the impact we're getting awesome feedback about the visuals that we've had that we've commissioned for this And so that's also a part of what we want to achieve with the crowdfunding because to be frank, if you're doing history on YouTube, you're not going to get like Logan and Jake Paul numbers of views, which means you're not going to get rich on your advertiser revenue and advertisers don't necessarily want to be associated with war and talking about people getting killed and politically controversial stuff and so on. So we rely on the crowdfunding. Uh, from A to C, essentially, or A to Z, as a Canadian would say. So that's kind of that's kind of the uh, the reality of the situation. We do want to push it as far as we can to the very end of the aftermath. And I guess I'll throw out the pitch now uh, for the for your listeners. If any anybody out there has their interest peaked and they want to support it, If you support directly the project, you also get access to uh, extra content. So we have like companion episodes for each regular episode that's on YouTube with more stuff, more detail that are not available uh, freely in in public. And anyone who's interested can go to realtimehistory.net slash glory and defeat. And we appreciate all of you lovely supporters in advance. Thank you, Wes, for allowing me to, to extend that pitch. No
3: problem. That's, I'm uh, always excited to see new and exciting sort of history projects out there that are available to everyone. Uh, that makes me uh, very happy to see that that sort of the, the real-time history people are continuing uh, to do that.
2: It's our pleasure, and I think it's fair to say uh, it's also our passion. And I think I can speak for the rest of the real-time history team, and uh, I hope also for Catherine and Dr. Arand on that score
1: Goodbye, Farewell, listen, a long, long way to different.